Well, we're continuing with our series of sermons now in the book of John. And I've I've been really interested working through the passage we're going to be looking at today because it deals with identity. And I really think identity is the topic of our age, is it not? It seems like people today are obsessed with questions about their own identity. And pity the fool who calls into question anybody's chosen self-designation. But what if our whole approach to defining identity is wrong? The standard approach is for us to be encouraged to look within and figure out from within who we are. Now that would work if we were Almighty God. Because where else would Almighty God have to look? Everything that exists comes from Him. So uh, certainly if we were God, we would need to look within to figure out our identity. But what if we're not God? What if we are finite beings who owe their existence to forces that are operating completely beyond our own control? Well, in that case... Maybe rather than looking within, we should look behind that to the source from which we come to figure out who we are. I think that's the way the Bible encourages us to contemplate this question of human identity. So we are still in our series of sermons from the gospel according to John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. And today's uh, passage, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. I have titled Human Identity. Let's go ahead and get started. Read verses, chapter 1, verses 19 through um, 22, sorry. And this is John's witness when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to him so they might ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, who then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he replied, no. So they said to him, who are you? So we might give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This is actually a very interesting passage because we get an opportunity to see how John the Baptist self-identified. He was point-blank asked to do this. Who are you? Who do you say you are? And I find it very interesting uh, how he replies to this question. Uh, First of all, I do want to point out a couple of things we find in this passage because they will play out through the rest of the Gospel of John. This is the first time in the Gospel of John we encountered the term the Jews. Gospel, uh, John in his gospel uses this term, the Jews or of the Jews or Jewish, uh, to refer to the Jewish people uh, pretty much throughout his gospel. He uses that designation to refer not simply to Jews, but to the Jewish people who kind of rallied forces against Jesus, that opposed Jesus. Uh, Some people think that uh, it kind of sounds a little anti-Semitic, and that's really not where John is coming from. John himself is a Jew. Uh, But he is confronting this uh, Jewish leadership. And in that sense, if these are the guys that really stand out front and represent the Jewish people, uh, then uh, it's an appropriate designation to say that these are the representatives, the upfront religious leaders of the Jewish people who are responding in this way to Jesus. And throughout the gospel, you will see that John refers to the Jews, and almost always it's in a negative context where they are coming before Jesus and challenging him, rejecting him, dismissing him, uh, treating him uh, with contempt. Uh, this term, Jews or Jewish or of the Jews, happens 71 times in the Gospel of John. 
And I would say in the Gospel of John, the thing we find on the other side of that is his use of the word disciple. The word disciple, or variants of it, appears 78 times in the Gospel. And it's almost, as we work our way through the Gospel according to John, like we have these two groups of people, people who are doing everything they can to be rid of Jesus, who are challenging him at every step and questioning and uh, rejecting Jesus, and others who are striving to understand who he is, who want to be his disciples who want to claim him as their rabbi, their teacher, their Messiah, and even Son of God. That's the journey uh, and the two groups we're going to see throughout the gospel. Uh, So uh, why do the Jews send priests and Levites from Jerusalem to question John the Baptist. Now in in John's gospel, John the Apostle, not the Baptist, in John's gospel, he has not introduced Jesus' public ministry yet. He starts with John the Baptist's public ministry. And because John comes, as we see in this passage, to prepare the way for Jesus, the leadership in Jerusalem immediately wants to send people to figure out just who this guy is. John the Baptist is not operating within the circles of the people uh, doing things in Jerusalem. So in that sense, he's a bit of a maverick. He's uh, kind of outside of the system that they've uh, kind of put together there. And they want to know just who this John is. You might wonder, well, why do they feel compelled to send somebody out uh, to the Jordan from Jerusalem to figure out who John is? But I think we find in the Jews that uh, John is describing here for us, We find a a group of people who feel like they really are in control of everything. And given the fever pitch that messianic expectations have reached in the first century, people are desperate for the Messiah to come. And there's so much speculation and so many different uh, religious leadership groups within the life of, of the Jews in the first century that have different takes on how this is all going to play out. The, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem wanted to make sure that as soon as somebody arose that seemed to be a significant figure, they had to go vet this person. They had to go figure out who it is and what they needed to say about him, whether they should support this figure or warn people against this figure. In fact, I think this attitude of superiority in Jerusalem, this attitude of we are the ones who hold the keys to the kingdom and unless we give the okay, nobody can arise legitimately. Uh, You have to come through us before the people of Israel will receive you. That that kind of sense of gatekeepers and checking up on anybody that shows up and uh, issuing their opinions on them, uh, I think even carried into the early church. We read in Acts uh, how uh, when Jews were forced out, the Jewish believers were forced out of Jerusalem and they started heading north into Samaria uh, and people in Samaria began to receive the gospel and God was working in their lives uh, immediately in Acts 8.14 the uh, church in Jerusalem sent Peter and John over to check and make sure everything was on the up and up and later on uh, we have the story of Peter when God forces him to share the gospel with a Gentile, uh, a centurion by the name of Cornelius and his whole household. And Peter is extremely reluctant, but God forces him to do this. And Peter preaches the gospel and they believe and the Holy Spirit falls on them right then and there. Then when Peter returns to Jerusalem, he is immediately criticized for doing this. And he has to explain himself before the church and uh, get their approval so to speak. So this pattern of behavior of the Jerusalem Jewish religious leadership having this sense that they have to vet anybody that wants to rise up and do anything when it comes to the things of God uh, is I think very evident in the first century. And they're sending that, you know, John is out there baptizing people. They send people to figure out who he is. People from the priests and the Levites. And these would be people in charge of the worship at the temple and also the teaching that went on at the temple, in the temple courts. And uh, singing and worship and that kind of thing. Uh, 
So they, they come before John, and this is how John the Gospel writer describes what John the Baptist is doing here. This is John's witness. Again, there's a difference between witness and uh, being an expert on something. John didn't just have information about something. He hadn't just read up on things. He was a witness. He was a personally involved participant in the things of which he was speaking. And uh, that is the way Christian witness needs to work. You need to be sharing with people about the Christ you know. Not just information, but you need to be sharing with people about the, the God who has transformed your life. And that is what John is doing here. He is bearing witness. And that word, I've already told you, is going to be a dominant word throughout the Gospel of John. Bearing witness. And uh, basically, we will see throughout the Gospel of John how both John and all a whole uh, assortment of other things are bearing witness to who Jesus is. And how there are some who reject that witness and some who accept it. So here's the question to John. Who are you? Self-identify for us. Who are you? And John, the gospel writer, wants to make sure we don't miss this. He's very redundant. He confessed and did not deny and confessed. That's the way the Greek reads. He confessed and did not deny and confessed. So he repeats it uh, twice to make sure we absolutely Pay attention to what John said. What is the first thing he had to say when people were asking him, Who are you? The first thing he said is, I am not the Christ. It may seem odd when asked to identify who he is that John would reply by saying who he is not. But I think there's great wisdom in that. I think until we admit who we are not, we're probably not in a very good position to figure out who we are. I mentioned this earlier. I am not omnipotent. I am not omniscient. Everything that exists does not depend on me for existence. I am not the source of everything that is. In fact, I don't even know how I got here. I just showed up. I did nothing to bring myself into existence. And I am very aware that the whole universe is progressing on and I'm not the one running it. So maybe I need to begin by admitting who I am not. I am not the Christ, he says. Now, of course, that's the big expectation, right? God had promised to send a king of kings, a prince of peace, one who would fix all that was broken in creation, one that would make all things right, finally. John says, I am not that person. I am not the one who is going to restore the universe. I wonder sometimes whether we don't get all this backwards because we start by focusing on who we think we are and pay no attention to who we're not. I don't run things. I'm not the answer to the problems of the world and ultimately even the little problems of me. I am not the solution. I am one more in need of a Savior. John begins there. Now certainly, probably it, was, it would have been very flattering to play with the idea. Maybe I am the Messiah. Who knows? But John flatly cuts that off. He knows this is not who I am. I am not the Messiah. So they ask him, who then? Are you Elijah? That might seem like an odd question. Um... Before I say that, let me, let me mention one more thing about John. When John says, I am not the Christ, it's not that he was not a worthy prophet figure. It's not that he was not a, a worthy person. If you're talking about men of God, women of God, people of faith, John, we are told, stands at the absolute top. 
And it's amazing. Jesus even seems to place him higher than Moses. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now if somebody of that caliber starts identifying himself, not by saying, look what I've done, but by saying, let me tell you who I'm not. I'm not the answer. I'm not the fixer of creation. I am not the Christ. Then perhaps we would do well to come at this question the same way he did. So, are you Elijah? And what? That's an odd question. Why would they want to know if he's Elijah, given that Elijah was a prophet who lived nine centuries before John? Um, well, let me tell you a little bit about the background for Elijah. Elijah is one of two figures in the Bible that we are told uh, was taken up into heaven by God. We have Enoch who walked with God and then was no more because God took him. And then we have Elijah. And in 2 Kings 2.11, we are told of how a fiery chariot took him up into heaven. So after, through the centuries, the Jewish people had made a lot of, uh, they'd speculated a lot about these two figures and even written books in their names as though they were kind of new uh, revelations of God. But uh, their idea was that these two never died. That somehow they ascended to immortality with God. Now, of course, the Bible never once says that. The Bible does not say that they did not die. Uh, but because of that and because of one more thing, Malachi, uh, one of the uh, prophets who wrote a, a small book of prophecy, Malachi said in chapter 4, verse 5, and the way we have our Old Testament arranged, it's like, almost, it's like the next to last verse before we end the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. The prophet Malachi had talked about a great and awesome day of Yahweh in which God was going to come. And before that happened, Elijah the prophet, God would send him. So uh, there was this expectation. Okay, you're not the Christ. Uh, maybe the, the great day of Yahweh is not here, but maybe you are the precursor to that. Maybe you are the Elijah who is supposed to usher in the great day of Yahweh. John's response to that is, I am not, which creates a bit of a problem because Jesus contradicted John the Baptist. In Matthew eleven thirteen and 14, this is what he says about John the Baptist. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus identified John as that Elijah of Malachi. Why did John say he wasn't? I don't think he was uh, trying to deceive anybody. I think we need to pay attention to who is answering the question. Uh, when asked, John uh, was asked, are you Elijah? John was not aware that he was. Apparently, God had not revealed to him that this was who he was. Even though he was doing it, he, was, he himself was not aware that that, is what, uh, that is, was his identity. Uh, so Jesus, shortly before Herod Antipas has John the Baptist beheaded, uh, makes it clear to everyone listening to him there that John, uh, and at that point he was arrested and in prison, but uh, Jesus said those words and made it very clear, John is the Elijah that we were waiting for. He is this figure come to prepare the way for the arrival of God. Uh, and uh, the only reason John doesn't claim to be the, the, uh, this Elijah is that uh, he wasn't aware that he was. Uh, and out of humility and uh, uh, a commitment to not overstep, if God had not revealed to him that this is who he was, he wasn't going to claim it. Uh, and I think that's the only thing we see going on there. Um, one more thing I want to say about this. And that is uh, that, uh, are we talking about reincarnation here? Was John, Elijah, reincarnated? 
And I think the Bible is very clear. In Hebrews 9.27, we're told this, that it is appointed to all men to die once and then the judgment. Uh, even Jesus adhered to that. He died once. Uh, so th that is the appointed reality for all humankind. And if I understand scripture correctly, then that applies to both Enoch and Elijah. They must have died as anybody would. And the Bible is very clear. We don't come back. Uh, so the sense in which we are saying that John is Elijah is not Elijah reincarnated. We are saying that John is typologically connected to Elijah. Just as Elijah in his day called Israel to turn to God in a very dark moment in their history, so too John the Baptist is doing the same in his day, calling people to prepare their hearts to draw near to God. Uh, in, in a very critical moment in Israel's history. So there is a typological connection, just as we could talk about Jesus as David uh, in, in a typological connection, connection as the David to come, uh, without saying that he is literally the David. Then they ask, are you the prophet? And he replied, no. So who's this prophet? Well, that goes even further back. Um, it goes all the way back to the first group of books written in the Bible, the, the books of Moses. And in the final of those books, Deuteronomy, where Moses is recording his farewell speeches to Israel before he dies, uh, he tells them this, that God has revealed to him. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, as Israel looked back over their history, they had had some great prophets. But as they evaluated, they thought really nobody on the, at, on the level of Moses. Because when Moses came, God used him to reveal things that were paradigm establishing for the whole people of Israel in terms of how they relate to God, how they understand themselves, their own identity as a people, and their relationship with God. Moses was crucial to establishing the patterns by which we, we even uh, interact with God ourselves and the world. Every prophet that came after Moses basically commented on what Moses had given, but didn't really bring some new paradigm establishing reality on the level that Moses had. So they said, you know, we've had great prophets, but none like Moses. And in, Jesus, in the first century, the Jews were still waiting for this great prophet uh, to come. So they asked Peter, uh, they ask, I'm sorry, they ask um, John the Baptist if he is this prophet. And he says no. And here he's right. In the New Testament, oh, the way uh, the New Testament books are written and the things they say make it very clear that uh, the understanding of the first century Christians was that Jesus was that prophet, that the Messiah was meant to be that prophet who established a whole new covenant and who established a whole new way of relating to God that was far superior to anything Moses did. So Jesus is that prophet. Uh, Peter identifies him as such in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. And later on in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verse 14, and chapter 7, verse 40, the people will say about Jesus, this is truly the prophet who was to come. And John includes those statements clearly expecting us to read that and say, you know what, they're absolutely right. Jesus is that prophet. So John was not the prophet. So finally they, they seem exasperated. So who are you? We have got to give an answer to the people who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This tells me that they really weren't seeking to learn anything useful from John. They did not come to John to hear his witness. They just wanted to give the people in Jerusalem the information they thought they wanted. There was no sincere desire to learn anything from John. They just wanted information to take it back to Jerusalem. And you know what? So often it's the religious fanatics who have the least interest in what God is up to. 
because they're too tied up in the structures of the religious world they live in and the power and the prestige and the position they are jockeying to guard and maintain within that structure. They're so caught up in that that they have no time to hear what God is trying to say. God has sent John to bear witness and they have no interest in his witness. They just say, tell us what we need to know for the people in Jerusalem. I have a question from these first few verses. Perhaps John the Baptist teaches us that if we are ever to know who we are, we must begin by recognizing who we are not. We are not the Christ, the King of Kings. Why do you think we find it so difficult to admit our limitations when we consider our own identity? Let's continue, verses 23 through 28. He said, this is John the Baptist, I am a voice crying out, In the wilderness make straight the Lord's way, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now those who had been sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, So why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John replied to them, I baptize in water. Among you has stood one whom you do not know, the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy that I should loosen it. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So how does John reply to the question, what do you say about yourself? He says, I am a voice crying out. In the wilderness make straight the Lord's way. John defines himself not on looking inward and responding to inner impulses and musings about himself. He replies who I am. He replies to that question by saying what he is here for. John believes that the truest answer to identity is purpose. Why do I live? John's purpose is to call people to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah, for the arrival of God Almighty. He is this voice crying out. And notice John is, has no interest in any titles or designations. He doesn't want to claim to be Elijah. He doesn't want to claim to be the prophet. He doesn't want to claim to be the Christ. He just wants to say, this is what I'm about. Forget your titles. Uh, I am here to call Israel to make straight the way for the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And in Isaiah 40, there's a huge shift the first 39 chapters are a message of judgment against Judah because of her sins. God is going to allow them to suffer the consequences of those sins. And Babylon is going to come in and, and take over the city and destroy the temple. And in chapter 40, we shift to a perspective after all of that has happened. And it opens with, comfort my people. Jerusalem has suffered for her sin and she has been pardoned. And God talks about coming to her and revealing his glory to all flesh. God is going to reveal his glory not only to his people who are in exile, but to all flesh. And in that prophecy of Isaiah 40, there's this precursor activity, a voice crying out, prepare the way for God to arrive. Make straight the paths, and he's going to come and set everything right. John says, this is who I am. I am someone God has commissioned to call Israel to prepare for its Messiah. There's not a, an easy title for that, but this is who he is. And uh, apparently they, they didn't really care for his answer. They didn't ask any more about that. What do, you, what do you mean make straight the Lord's way? What, what do you think Isaiah was talking about? They asked nothing about that. 
They're just trying to get the answer they need for the folks back in Jerusalem. So, okay, uh, well explain to me, why are you baptizing then? If you are not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, why should we even care who you are? Now, baptism was an odd thing. It is true that in the first century, Jews had become very obsessed with ritual purity to the point that uh, if you look at uh, archaeological digs from the first century right now, you will find what they call mikvahs all over the place. And these are places where you can bathe. The reason for this being Jews were so obsessed with ritual cleanliness that they were constantly bathing themselves to make sure that they remained clean of uh, any contact with something impure they may have come into contact with. And it was about being uh, ritually pure, acceptable to God. But the way Jews did this is every person, ba- uh, every person bathed themselves. You went into the mikvah and cleaned yourself and stepped out of it. That wasn't something that somebody else did to you. There was one situation in which Jews in the first century would uh, perform the ritual cleansing for another, and that's if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism. He would be circumcised, and then another Jew would give him his first ritual cleansing in water to signify the transition from being a Gentile to a Jew. At that point, he would be set to do his own cleansing. So it is a little bit, uh, I think, perhaps offensive to the Jews that John is baptizing them. He's basically treating them as outsiders that need to be inducted into what God is doing. And the Jews thought that they were already insiders by virtue of birth. They were born into the people of God. They didn't need to do the things the Gentiles had to do. So it is a legitimate question. Why are you baptizing? Why are you treating all of us Like we need to get something straight before we're acceptable in what God's doing. That's actually a a good question. And uh, the reason is that they are not acceptable yet. John came to preach a baptism of repentance until the Jews themselves recognized that they were in need of forgiveness. They were not in a position to enter into the kingdom of God. And John makes this distinction. There are people who God is uh, preparing to be part of his people and he does this by the miracle of birth. In chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about people not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of a husband, but born of God. In chapter 3, Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. John and his baptism is communicating to all the Jewish people that they are not ready for the Messiah's kingdom. They need to repent and be cleansed before they they will be adequate for entry into the kingdom. They will need for God to do something to them beyond the physical birth they already have. So, But notice, John really doesn't tell them this. He will a little bit later in the passage. He'll tell it to some other people. But he, I think John understood that the people asking this question really weren't interested in the answer, you guys need to repent. He tried to, tried to focus them in that direction, though. He said, I baptize in water. Among you has stood one whom you do not know, the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy that I should loosen it. John says, what I'm doing is really nothing. I'm just pouring water on people. That is not going to change them in any way. I do not have the power to change anything about you. I cannot fix what's broken in your soul. I can't do any of that. I'm just dunking people in water. 
But you guys need to know there's somebody and he is already here. You don't know who he is yet, but he is already here and he is coming. And let me tell you who I am in relation to him. I'm unworthy of falling on my face at his feet and untying one strap on his sandal. Now, it does develop in rabbinic tradition. They make it explicit in rabbinic tradition that uh, the disciple of a rabbi cannot be required to untie his sandal because that was considered too demeaning. Only a slave could be compelled to untie another person's sandal. John is saying, I'm not even worthy of being the slave of the one who is coming after me. John is trying to help the people asking him these questions get where they need to get to to become part of all this. You have to understand your unworthiness. You have to understand that you deserve nothing and you are not in a position of authority. You do not get to vet God's Messiah. He does not need your approval. But you need his acceptance and only humility, only the right attitude before him will get you there. One final note on verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Clearly John is not talking about the Bethany that was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. That one was not on the Jordan. But apparently there was another city and some scholars suggest maybe it's uh, Batania is the, would be the name of the city. Uh, up in Galilee on the other side of the Jordan there was a small town called Batania. And this might be an alternate spelling of that. And maybe John is doing this so that he can kind of open this uh, description, this bearing witness about Jesus by talking about John's ministry in this Bethany area uh, in Galilee. Uh, and he's going to start the story there and then when we reach the further end of the story when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry his final stop before that will be Bethany near Jerusalem when he comes in as the Lamb of God to take on the sin of the world I have a question from these verses John the Baptist said he did not deserve to be the lowliest slave of the Christ why is it important that we cultivate this attitude of humility before God in our own hearts? And how can we do so? Let's read verses 29 through 31. The next day he sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, Look, the Lamb of God, the one who is taking up the world's sin. This is the one of whom I said, After me is coming a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I had not known him, but it was so that he might be revealed to Israel that I came baptizing in water. This witness of John takes place over a few days. So the next day, and apparently at this point the, the people from Jerusalem questioning him have already gone back. But the next day he sees Jesus approaching and he turns to uh, uh, those near him and says, Look, the Lamb of God. Now that, that points to the whole Old Testament sacrificial system where a perfect lamb was the one who was sacrificed for the sin of the guilty. And this, uh, some translations say, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, but it can also be translated, who takes up who takes upon himself the world's sin. And I almost think of this ambiguity as working perfectly with uh, the, the most significant uh, representation in the law of Moses of what we would call atonement, of one taking on the sin of Israel and uh, bearing it so that Israel may be declared clean. And that is the day of atonement. There was one day of the year in which Israel was to atone for the sins of the whole year. And there, there were two... Uh, two uh, sacrificial animals involved in this. There was a goat 
And the high priest would put his hands on the head of the goat and confess Israel's sin and that goat would be sent away from the camp and that goat would carry upon himself away from Israel the sins of Israel. He would take up the sins of Israel. Then there was the other one, the other lamb that would be sacrificed on the altar. And in so doing, it would pay for the sins of Israel. Jesus, John is saying, is doing both things. He not only takes upon himself the sins of the world, the sins of creation, every possible expression of evil, moral evil, natural evil, any evil you choose to identify, he took all of it upon himself and dealt with it definitively in his death on the cross. John says, this is the one I was talking about. He comes after me, but he ranks before me because he was before me. Now, we know from Luke's account that John the Baptist was related to Jesus. We're not real sure. It could be that Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. Some suggest sister. The word in Greek just means kinswoman. Uh, so it, it, it's hard to know with precision. But sh- Elizabeth and Mary were related. And when Elizabeth was six months pregnant is when Mary became pregnant. So John is six months older than Jesus. And yet he says, he was before me. And John understands that we're talking here about God Almighty. And he exists from eternity. The incarnation was not the moment the Son began to exist. The incarnation was just when he showed up here in that way for us to see him. Now, he admits, I hadn't known him. I didn't know uh, until God told me. I didn't know who it was going to be. But notice, this is why I came baptizing. So that he might be revealed to Israel. It's odd. Why didn't he tell the uh, Levites and priests who asked him? Why didn't he answer that question when they asked him, why are you baptizing? Why didn't he say, so that he, the Messiah might be revealed to Israel? He didn't tell them that. He said, you know what you need to know? Where you need to start is with humility. The best of us is unworthy of even untying one strap of his sandal. Until you come before Jesus in humility, you are not going to see who he is and you are not going to be apt for participation in his kingdom. But to those who are, uh, have a different attitude, he says, let me tell you what I'm doing. I am baptizing people so that he might be revealed to Israel. I want Israel to see Jesus for who he is. That is why I'm calling on them to repent. That is why I'm calling on them to show a willingness to repent and come in humility so that they may be admitted into the Messiah's kingdom. I have a question from these verses. John the Baptist points us to Jesus who has come to take on the entire problem of sin in the whole universe. Why must we understand Jesus as Savior rather than just teacher or philosopher. And let's finish reading the passage, verses 32 through 34. John bore witness, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove from heaven, and it remained upon him. I did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize in water, that one told me, upon whomever you should see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this one is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the chosen one of God. Again, John is bearing witness. It's not hearsay. It's eyewitness testimony. It's his personal account. And here's the thing. God who sent him to baptize had told him, I am going to reveal to you who the Messiah is. And I'm going to tell you what the Messiah is going to do. He is going to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. He is going to immerse, submerge people in the very Spirit of God. John says God gave him a sign that would indicate to him 
the person you see the spirit descending upon dove-like in in the way a dove would and it's uh, hard to know exactly what that would have looked like but uh, you see it descending on him and remaining on him that's the one and John says here's here's my personal testimony I actually saw that happen to Jesus when he was baptized, uh, the Spirit came and remained on him. And that was the sign God had given me to identify so that I would know who to point people to. This is the one. This is the one who can baptize in the Holy Spirit. You see, John recognized, great as he was, that he could do nothing for anybody, not even himself. He couldn't save anybody from their sins. He couldn't eliminate the problem of sin in all of creation. He couldn't fix a single thing that was wrong. All he could do was pour water on people and tell them this is the way we are communicating physically in this symbolic act. We are making it clear that we recognize our need for cleansing to be acceptable. That we are unworthy, that we are sinful, and we come before God in need of saving. We need this if we're going to see Jesus for who he is. You know who Jesus is. He's the Savior of the world. And if you come to Jesus looking for something other than that, you're not going to see who he is. You're not going to have him revealed to you. John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the chosen one of God. There's an interesting textual issue with that verse. There are some very ancient manuscripts that there read that this is the Son of God. But there are some other also ancient manuscripts that have this is the chosen one of God. And when when you have something like that where the validity of the ancient manuscripts seems about equally divided, then you try to figure out which reading might make sense that somebody might have changed it to the other rather than the other way around. And it makes sense that uh, given that throughout the Gospel of John, this identification of Jesus as Son of God is repeated many times, that somebody might look at that and say, you know, this would make more sense if we just uh, put it in, in the terms we find later on in the Gospel and just say Son of God here. Uh, But that makes sense. You can see somebody wanting to make that adjustment. But if you think of it backwards, if the text originally read, this is the Son of God, there's really no good reason anybody would want to change that to this is the Chosen One of God. So most likely, Chosen One was probably the original reading there. And uh, before you go crazy about that, uh, I will say that the Gospel of John makes it very clear repeatedly over and over, we are told that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't need John the Baptist to say it right here in this verse for that to be established very clearly throughout the whole Gospel. But uh, if John here is choosing at this moment to tell people, this is the chosen one of God, He is calling on them first to understand that he is the Messiah. And as we work our way through the gospel, we will be led to the conclusion that not only is Jesus the Messiah, he is also the Son of God. He's more than just a man. But uh, John is, is introducing Jesus as the chosen one of God. And that's a very messianic uh title and designation I have a final question from these verses even the greatest of men can only handle symbols and rituals John the Baptist stated that Jesus can actually bring humans back into communion with God Almighty how should we live so that Jesus alone is the mediator of our relationship with God There's something profoundly twisted about what sin has done to us. Because of the presence of sin in us, our communion with God has been severed. 
And that, when we ask questions of identity, that throw us in, throws us into absolute chaos because uh, having been disconnected from the source from which I arose, I'm at a complete loss to figure out why I'm even here. But if we do want to figure out who we are, I think we need to go to why whoever made me put me here. I think that is the most fundamental question of identity we can try to wrestle with. Why did God put me here? Why did he breathe life into me? Why am I alive? Surely the one who fashioned me knows the answer to that question. Here's the problem. Sin has separated me from God. And I can't answer that question anymore. That's why it's so important what John had to tell us about Jesus. He is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Not only does he reconnect us to God Almighty, he immerses us in God. He submerges us completely so that God fills every aspect of what we are and who we are. That is what John later will describe as being born again, born of God. Jesus can reconnect us to the only one who holds the key to our existence and ultimately to our identity. The Jews who grilled John were not interested in reconnecting with God. They were too busy impressing everybody around them and playing into the, the games that people around them were playing of power and prestige and designations and identifiers. But if we listen to the witness of John the Baptist... We will humbly come before God. We will come in repentance, in recognition of need, and say, God, I want Jesus to immerse me in you. I want to be restored to communion with the only one who knows the answers. My prayer for you today is that that is how you know Jesus. That you don't just know historical information about him. That you don't know just a, an accurate account of what is found in the Bible about him. But that you know him as the one who has submerged you fully in God. And that in him you have found the identity of who he made you. Let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you for loving us, for coming to us. And we recognize that we don't know, we don't have the power, we don't uh, have the ability to fix anything around us and not even to fix ourselves. And we know we're not worthy to come close to you, Lord, but we are so grateful that you will receive any who come humbly. And Lord, we repent of our sin. We repent of every defiant act against you as our creator, every insolent, self-centered thing we have done. We ask you to take us and immerse us in your spirit and reveal to us, Lord, day by day, step by step, who you created us to be, what purpose you have for our existence. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.